Well, you often hear preachers say something to the effect that you know that the church is the people, not the steeple, uh, by which they mean that the church really isn't a building. The church is a, a people, and it's not just a people, it's a gathered assembly of people who are living in committed relationship with one another. I don't know if I've ever felt the reality of that as much as I do this morning as I'm sitting in a building with uh, seven brothers and sisters uh, preaching to an, an empty room. Uh, so this morning as we gather together, I, I am reminded of the season that we are in. Uh, we've been quarantined for the last uh, few weeks. I'm sure a number of you have been trying to figure out how to live the corona life, um, trying to figure out what it looks like to be living in quarantine, separated from others, uh, not by choice, but because you have to. Uh, and it's in this season that I've gotten a lot of calls uh, from folks or about folks in our congregation who are going through a difficult time. Some have already lost jobs. Uh, some have been uh, asked to not take pay. And so there are all kinds of, of challenges. There are all kinds of dangers, all kinds of fears that are all around us. And I, I really started to study and research what it is that you are supposed to, to preach during an, an epidemic. How do you preach to people? What is it that we need to preach from when we preach about a people who are going through a kind of unique sickness like what we find. And what I found was, interestingly, Psalm 91 has been a go-to text. It's been on the top 10, I would say, list of texts that people are preaching or have preached through the last 2,000 years. Both Jewish and Christian believers have looked to this church for a kind of encouragement. And it's mainly because of what you find in verse 3 of chapter or of Psalm 91. It says there that God will deliver the person who dwells and abides in him from the deadly pestilence. Now, I had to look up pestilence. It's a contagious epidemic disease of devastating proportion. So obviously that sounds familiar to what it is that we are dealing with and makes sense why both Jews and Gentiles have looked to this text for an encouragement, both Jews and Christians throughout history. Now, it's fascinating as you look at the history of the way that people have looked at this text. Uh, some have looked at it and said that it has a kind of apotropaic power. That's a, a magical power to heal. In fact, many in the past would copy down parts of this chapter on either amulets or maybe on the walls of their home or jewelry for the, the purpose of conjuring up the, the powers that are in these verses. Now, elsewhere it was looked at in other ways uh, that were related. Uh, medieval, the medieval commentary, the Glossa Ordinaria, it was a, a main work that was used as a commentary throughout the Middle Ages, called this psalm a hymn against demons, and we'll see that later. But what's fascinating is that so many looked to this verse and its power, and, and sometimes they debated whether or not this power was achieved merely by the power of the words themselves being read out. Others looked at it and said, well, actually, it's not just the words read out, but instead it is a virtuous life that actually takes hold of the power that's presented here in Psalm 91. Even in Charles Spurgeon day, that great pastor in England said that there was a German doctor in his day that prescribed Psalm 91 as the best preservative in times of cholera, and in truth, it is a heavenly medicine against plague and pest. Now, you might listen to this history and you think to yourself, well, man, may maybe this is just sort of like an antiquated way to look at Psalm 91. But I was actually reading an article just this week in the Christian Post where Brian Tamaki of Destiny Church in New Zealand said in his sermon on Psalm 91, tithe-paying, Bible-believing, Holy Spirit-filled Christians have a Psalm 91 protection policy against COVID-19 and will not get it. Well, this is not just something of lore. This is something of today, the way that this chapter, this psalm has been used. But as we come to it, I, I want us to think about how we are to understand the emphatic promises of deliverance from sickness and danger in this psalm. As confirmed cases and deaths go up and it feels as though our retirements and safety goes down, uh, we need to ask ourselves, what does Psalm 91 have to say to us? Now, this psalm, if you look at it, it's actually anonymous and timeless. But it does show up in the fourth of the five books of Psalms. And what we 
believe is, is that this book four of the Psalms is actually a book that's looking to respond to the failures of the house of David to bring about all of those far-reaching promises that were promised back in 2 Samuel 7. And so here we, we find help for those who are feeling hopeless. See, when the psalmist feels like danger is all around and hope is lost, he raises his gaze to heaven in these verses. And so the big idea that I'm going to be preaching on this morning from Psalm 91 is this. If you take notes, a great thing to write down. It is that we are to trust that God's protection for his people is tender and tough amidst every danger. We are to trust that God's protection is tender and tough amidst every danger. In fact, you might even want to say tough enough amidst every danger, and you'll see what I mean as we go along. But first, notice this. We're going to see that the psalmist says, I will trust my God to protect me in verses 1 to 3. I will, protect my, I will trust my God to protect me. Now, I'm not sure how you work. But my natural tendency is to move from my experiences in everyday life, the things that I see all around me, up to my theology of what God is like, kind of like a rocket. I tend to move from the bottom up. But the Bible's interesting in that it is actually constantly encouraging us to work in the opposite direction. It says that our knowledge of God should be more like gravity than rockets, beginning with God's word to us and working down into our experiences so that we are interpreting reality with the mind of God. I love what A.W. Pink says. He first introduced me to this reality when I was just a teenager and I picked up a copy of Sovereignty of God where he wrote these words. He said, instead of beginning with man and, and this world and then working back to God, we must begin with God and work down to man in the beginning as the Bible begins. Begin with the world as it is today and try to work back up to God and everything will seem to show that God has no connection with the world at all. But begin with God and work down to the world and light, much light is cast onto the problem. See, the psalmist does this exact thing here in Psalm 91. Notice, notice how he works down from God to his own personal experiences in verses 1 to 2. Now, notice what he says. Look with me again in Psalm 91, verses 1 to 2. He says this. It is good, I'm sorry, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, and whom I trust. Now, a good friend of mine, uh, when he is counseling people and speaking into their lives, he, he likes to say, he uses this phrase, telling people that they're in a, a good place. He says, I want you to know you're in a good place. Now, when he says that, I, I love that phrase because I know what he means. He's not just talking about geography, that you're in the right location, that you've got the right GPS coordinates. No, when he's talking about someone being in a good place, he is encouraging them to know that though things might seem difficult and confusing all around them, they need to remain faithful to God and trust God where they are at in their lives, trusting God's protection. Now, the psalmist is doing the same thing in verse 1. He reminds anyone who has ears to hear that if you stick close to God, he is your great protector your safe place. Now he begins with two names of God to bolster the confidence of God's people. Uh, he, he says that God is most high, El Elyon, and that he is God Almighty, El Shaddai. These two names give us a picture of the God that he is speaking of. Now, when he looks at God most high, he's not just talking about altitude. It speaks of spiritual realities. See, God is transcendent. He is above and outside of and over every earthly power. But it's not just every earthly power. In fact, if you look at Psalm 82, we find there that it, it is God that is depicted 
in a divine council amongst all of the gods of the nations. And the psalmist declares there, God is most high and a shelter to his people so that he is not just above every earthly power, heavenly Heavenly power is far below him. There is none as high as God. The God who is far above. Think about this. The one who is far above. The God who is far above. Every earthly power. Every heavenly power in these verses is also shown to be near to his people. Shelter to them. But he's also strong for his people. He is the all-powerful God. See, the Bible never presents a legitimate contender for God. If you're looking through the Bible for a legitimate contender, it's not there. Uh, This isn't like uh, one of the Rocky movies where Rocky is confronted with Mr. T and the whole time you're wondering, is he going to win? No, the story of the Bible is that God wins. And there's not even a legitimate contender on the board. God is the all-powerful, omnipotent God with whom there is no contender. But did you catch how he shifts gears in verse 2? He moves from the he of the man who dwells to the me of me and what I'm going to proclaim and declare. And this is what he says. That God is my God. And notice what he says as he makes this super intimate. He says, I will say to the Lord. Pay attention. Did you notice it's in all caps? See, that, that all caps Lord is a third name that is presented in these verses. It is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. It's a name that God gave Moses back in Exodus 6, 3. And you'll remember there, God tells Moses, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. But I'm letting you know that name. I am your covenant God who is for you and goes with you and will redeem a people through you and with you and in you to make my name great. See, God gave the name Yahweh to his people as his, as his his covenant people. He would keep his covenant with them. He would deliver them out of slavery in Egypt through a a host of plagues, including sickness, even unto death. And yet his people would walk free through that sickness. And he says, I will put my name on this people. What's beautiful here is the the psalmist has not forgotten the promises of God. He has not forgotten the past works of God. He has not forgotten God. Remembering God's unrivaled power and covenant promises fuel his future prayer to the Lord in times of plenty and times of want. He will say, you are my God. See, you are my refuge and fortress, my God, in whom I trust. God, you're my safe place. I'm in a good place when I'm dwelling under the shadow of your protection. You are my refuge, the place whom I will run to when I am in danger. You are my fortress about me, the wall behind which I shall live for safety. He even takes the general name of God, that fourth name in these verses, Elohim, and he makes it deeply personal, calling God, my God, I will trust you. When I don't understand what I see with my eyes, I can trust my unseen, most high, all-powerful, covenant-keeping God to protect me. Isn't that good news? That is what this psalmist puts his confidence in. Let me ask you this morning, as you're listening, Are you in a safe place? Are you in a good place? Are you trusting God? I think a good place means that you are humbly submitting yourself. You you see the image, both of the images, the, the shadow and the shelter. I am living under the presence of God. I am abiding in, dwelling in, under him. I am in a good place. I am submitting to the most high God, trusting him as my all powerful protector. Is that you? Or this morning, are you putting your hope in all kinds of things that you shouldn't? This week, I I find myself sometimes putting almost too much confidence in washing my hands, in wearing rubber gloves, in maybe wearing a biomed suit. There there are all these things that that we're doing to try to stay safe. And, And I would even say that those aren't bad things. Those aren't things that aren't 
faithful. Faith washes its hands. It wears rubber gloves. It uses good medicine. But it also recognizes that these things don't ultimately protect us. In fact, what we're going to find in the coming verses is that the dangers that we see are just some of the dangers, and there are more dangers than we even know. See, sometimes a little disruption to our lives can be revealing, and we've experienced a disruption in our lives. And when we are quarantined in our house, I want to ask you, what is it that you are running to? Where are you going? When you're not going anywhere geographically, where are you going spiritually? You know, did you finish Netflix last week? And are you just like waiting for something else to come out? Or how's your, your marriage? Or, or, are you loving your wife, your husband well? How are you loving your kids? Are you, you pointing one another towards Christ and towards the greater things? Are you gaming the quarantine away? Are you watching your 401k rise and fall and find your affections and your hopes rising and falling with that in a way that it's never really risen or fell with your God who is most high? How's your trust in God? You know, all of us are getting a little bit of a taste of the monastic life, separated from other humans. Uh, monastic uh, life is basically the life of monks who believe that if they were able to get away from the entanglements of the world, that they could get away from sin and evil. How's that working out for you? In your moment, are you like the monks, like even Benedict himself, who started the Benedictine order, who found that even in the cave he was struggling with lust? Is that you? Is this a time where you are safe, or is this a time where you realize that you need a greater shelter than your home? You need God himself. And when all of this is over, how will you remember and tell your kids, or even maybe grandkids, about how you spent your time? Would it be characterized by prayer? I will say to the Lord, my refuge and fortress, my God in whom I trust. Is that what's being declared in your home, or are you putting your confidence and your fear in other things? How are you bolstering your confidence in God these days? Are you praying? Are you spending time in God's word? And if you live with others, are you pointing them towards confidence in God? Are you encouraging other church members? Are you calling them, emailing them? Have you forgotten those who are vulnerable all around you because you're so self-interested? And I find my heart just so self-interested in day-by-day mundane tasks that I'm trying to to do, and all of a sudden I'm reminded there are brothers and sisters all around me who are alone and needy and need help and who are losing jobs and who are sick, and we need to love them. So if you're overwhelmed by the dangers that surround you, consider again the nature of God's protection for his children. But he doesn't stop in verse 2. He, he actually he, he goes into verses 3 to 13 to, to give you a, a more clear picture a clearer picture of what the protection he has in mind looks like. See, this psalm, it does not promise a protective orb where danger is absent. Not according to verses 3 to 13. Notice, second, God's protection is tender and tough amidst every danger. God's protection is both tender and tough amidst every danger. Now, you'll notice in verses 3 to 13 that the pronouns are shifting. That's telling us something. He's moving from an audience that is me to an audience that is you. And it seems almost like in this text, we find a pastor or a priest that is shepherding a people through how to trust God in all of life. And so he's going to talk about some of the dynamics that make trusting God amidst danger difficult. See, he pictures God's people as vulnerable little birds and warriors surrounded by numerous, various, terrifying dangers on every side in these verses. So notice first that dangers are everywhere in verse 3. He's going to repeat this, but dangers are everywhere. Just look at the confident promise of the psalmist. And to all of those who are in the good place in verse 3, this is what he says. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will. In fact, the he that begins that verse is emphatic, meaning surely he will deliver you. But the surety of the deliverance shouldn't minimize the pervasive and various dangers that permeate his atmosphere. Did you notice that? They are everywhere. He is trusting confidently in God, and he's acknowledging that he is not not safe on the outside. He is only safe in God. Uh, Notice, there is the fowler. Fowler is a bird hunter, a a hunter who is looking to lay out hidden 
traps to catch these little birds. And if, the, if they evade the evil plots designed to steal our trust away, there's also the pestilence. So you almost get this image of, yeah, if you escape the, the arrows or the traps or the hunter's hand, uh, well, there's also the sickness that could get you. I mean, not exactly an encouraging image. And here again, a deadly pestilence like the coronavirus could come and get us. See, the world is not a safe place for these little birds. They are in danger. Their trust in God is in danger on every side. It's not just the little birds, but it's the little birds' trust in God. And so the schemes of the evil one are unfair, but God is always able to save his people. That's the point. He is always, despite the multiplicity of dangers that surround us, God is always able. He can deliver his people. There's always a way out. Now, here's a question you have to ask at this point, though. Does this mean that bad things don't happen to God's people? I didn't say good people, but God's people. See, does Psalm 91.3 mean that we should shelter in place? Or should I be wearing a biomed suit like Jude Law's character from Contagion? Has God promised that we will not catch the coronavirus if we're living right? And who is the we that are in a good place that should expect the fulfillment of these promises in our lives? Is it all those who quote verse 3 like a magic spell? Or is it all those who live a really virtuous life? Or is it simply a promise for a future day that we won't yet realize any of the present day manifestations of? Is it all those who do those things? See, all Christians believe Jesus is coming back and with healing in his wings to restore all things. But what I want to know is today, does this, does this chapter, does this psalm, should it give me a hope of protection in God? Is God my protector today? Now, I don't want to bury the lead, so I believe the confidence of the psalmist here is not that God's people will not suffer. Now, now the reason I say that is because I've read the Bible. Uh, the other reason I say that is because I'm a human. And both of those experiences tell me that God's people suffer, and even some of his chief servants suffer. Now, I don't think that's the point here. I believe the confidence of the psalmist is this, that God is fully able to deliver him from any danger, and that no one can ultimately snatch you from his hand. Now, no scheme or disease will snatch us out of God's hand. That is the psalmist's confidence. Uh, Hebrews eleven thirty three to 34, I, I think, pictures this really well. If you've read there, you remember that it pictures the judges and the prophets, men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit to do amazing works. And he says, through faith, they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong in weakness. They became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. You can read about those stories all throughout the Old Testament. Now, I wish it just stopped there. But you'll remember that it, Hebrews 11 doesn't stop there. It goes on in verses 36 to 37 and says this. Others suffered. Some were stoned, some sawn in two, and killed with the sword. There were some heroes of the faith who trusted God to the bitter end, and the end was bitter. Many of them would have likely sung Psalm 91 at one point. Daniel he would stop the lion's mouth. He would, he would walk in to a lion's den full of hungry lions who had been eating people all day, and they were ready for more, and he shows up, and we find that angels stopped the mouth of lions. Daniel stopped the mouth of lions, and they did not eat him. And so you might be thinking to yourself, oh, maybe that's true for me. There have been Christians in the past who thought that was a general sort of promise, and they had jumped into a pit with lions and discovered that wasn't true for them. Some have been chewed on. Some got eaten by lions. See, the psalmist wants our trust in God here to trump the fears of this world that tempt us to go God shopping and to put our trust somewhere else than God. Now, let's be like Peter in John 6. When Jesus is speaking to him, he notices that he is being abandoned 
by a number of disciples because the gospel message of his coming death is a hard message. It's a hard pill to swallow. And people are leaving him and abandoning him. And he looks to the 12 and he says, and will you leave me also? And Peter looks to him and says, but Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else to run. That's the message, I believe, of Psalm 91. There is nowhere else to go. But look at the nature of God's protection in verses 4 to 8. I love these, 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 these pictures that he gives us. And he gives us two pictures. He gives us the picture of a God who protects like a motherly hen and a mighty warrior. Kind of brings those together here. Uh, you'll notice that he says in verses 4 to 6, he says these things. He says, He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destructions that waste at noonday. And you'll notice here that he says that they will be hidden under the pinions of God. Now, I had to look up pinions. I don't know what pinions are. I've never used that word before, but it's actually the feathers or, or the wings under which these, these chicks are hiding. So the, the image here, if, if you follow along, is that God is taking us as little birds in danger, and he's removing us from the danger, and he's placing us under the shadow of his big chicken wings, and he's covering us up. And he's protecting us. And think about this. The protection that he is shedding over us in this picture is himself. He is wrapping us up in himself, in God, in such a way that if anyone wants to get to us, they have to go through him. I think the image is actually going to draw a little bit of nuance from the, the next image that's coming. In, in this sense, it is a picture of strong protection, but... Feathers are, are known as, as something that is, is soft and, and something that, that brings comfort. Uh, when you think about wings, and I think about wings, I get this image of a, a tender kind of love that God has for his people as he wraps them up and protects them from danger. It, it almost gives me an image not just of the act of the protection and the degree of the protection, but the heart of the protector. He loves these chicks as a, a protective bird protecting her own. And that's the image that we get of God coming and protecting these little birds. Did you know that, that God, that is the kind of protection that God has for you? As a, a father for his child, as a, a mother who is willing to go to any extent to lay down her life for her children, that's the picture that is giving here. Now, don't misinterpret this gentleness for weakness, though, because we also get the picture of God as a mighty warrior. Notice, his faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. Now, we know what a shield is. A buckler, a, a little bit different. Um, some have called it a, a sort of other shield, second shield that's used to protect another side. Others talk about it as a, a rampart or a wall defending a city. I think that's more likely because... I think there's an image that's being carried on sometimes in Psalms here that might be at play in, in these verses. See, these are military images. And God is pictured as a mighty warrior who is fighting for his people. God's a tough protector. He is tender and he is tough. Now, if you combine these images, I think the image would be something like a mighty motherly warrior hen. Uh, kids at home, if you want to start drawing pictures, um, uh, major props and kudos to the best picture of a mighty motherly warrior hen. So go ahead and draw that up. But here this picture is that this, this, this mighty motherly warrior hen is fighting for his little birds. God's protection is both tender and tough for his people. Now in verses 5 to 6, we again see that the dangers are pervasive and diverse both day and night. They are everywhere. See, when people get sick and die, it is scary. When someone attacks you, it is terrifying. But the psalmist, he will not fear. Now, why? Well, he hasn't lost sight of the greatness of his most high, almighty, 
covenant-keeping God. With his eyes fully fixed on the greatness of God, it dwarfs any of the earthly fears that are seeking to terrify him. And he knows that if this God is for him, who can be against him? Day and night, he is confronted with these scary dangers, but he does not fear because God comforts him with his protection. But God is also a warrior. He is a warrior with him in battle. As he fights for God, he knows he fights with God on his side. Now catch what he says in verses 7 to 8. He says this. He says, a thousand may fall at your side. This psalmist that he's speaking to and teaching. Ten thousand at your, at your right hand. But it will not come near to you. You will look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Now here's what I think is happening in this image. You'll remember verse 1 says we must abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now that same word for shadow is actually used in Psalm 121.5 where the psalmist says the Lord is your keeper, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. The 10,000 warriors falling on the right side of the psalmist like the 10,000 that fell on David's side. Remember the women singing and 2nd and 1st Samuel of the 10,000 that David has killed? Well, here we find that God's present protection for him is a mighty warrior is protecting his right side, his vulnerable side, his weak side is protected by Almighty God such that he is seeing more victory in his weakness than even in his strength. And God gets the credit for all who fall because the psalmist only looks on to see the recompense of the wicked. It is a judgment that has fallen that day. There is none that falls in the wrong way or for the wrong purposes. That's God bringing about his holy will through his people. That is his providential care for all that exists. See, the, the picture of God and his sovereignty here is one of a meticulous care for those who are trusting in him. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes in Romans 8 28 all things includes terrifying things see God's providence is working to protect his people God's people look like victims at times they look helpless often many look ignoble and weak according to first Corinthians have you ever felt like you were surrounded by 10,000 enemies I mean, I know that I have. I felt like at times the, the world is against me. I know the truth is that that's a lie, but the lie really sometimes seems to speak louder than the truth. And, and I can feel like the, the whole world is sort of caving in on me. And you can feel like, man, I don't know what my future financially is going to look like. I don't, I don't know what my relationships that seem so broken all around me are going to look like. How could God possibly fix these? How can I flee sin? And, and you see the enemies, they're not just all around, but they're diverse and they're, they're numerous and they're terrifying. And in the midst of that, you feel like you are absolutely helpless and hopeless. And yet, it's then that you look up to God, most high God. El Shaddai, all powerful. And there is no enemy or fear that confronts you that God himself is not able to meet. And because he is your Lord, the covenant-keeping God who loves you and has put your name on you if you are a believer and a Christian, you have no reason to think that his heart is not full of tender affection and longing desire to help you in whatever enemy confronts you. Whatever job it is that you've lost, God has not forgotten or lost sight of you. Whatever sickness comes upon you, God has not forgotten you or lost sight of you. And my eight-year-old Jack drove past me on the basketball court the other day. This is a true story. It's not one I'm going to ever repeat. But as soon as he drove by, he hit this jump shot, which was amazing. And I was super proud as a dad, as an athlete. I was sort of like, I should have blocked that stuff. And when he got done, he looked at me and he said, oh, did you see that? I flexed on you. And it was in that moment, like, I realized what he was saying. He was saying, I flexed on you in the sense that I showed you what I could do. And I want you to know that in these verses, what this psalmist is doing is, he is saying, don't forget this. When God flexes, enemies are shown to be small. 
I don't care what the enemy or the difficulty is, it is small and God is always providentially in charge. He is always sovereign. He always for his people. See, the fear of God causes all other fears to flee. But catch this. The dangers are not merely physical. If you thought the dangers that you have before you that you see are bad, don't forget that there are also not just physical enemies, but spiritual enemies at play. We see that in God's angels, what we find in verses 9 to 13. God's angels, he says, will protect you against spiritual enemies. God's angels will protect you against spiritual enemies. Now, notice as you look at verses 9 to 13, he begins reiterating the confidence that he's already declared in verse 1. He's saying it again in verse 9. And after he declares that, he's going to promise spiritual help against greater spiritual enemies in verses 10 to 13. Here's what he says in verses 9 to 13. He says this. He says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will continue his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. What a a promise here. God will command his angels to guard the psalmist at all times. Now, we do see in the Bible guardian angels. Uh, I, I don't know if some have claimed that it's like one angel to one Christian I don't know that we get that clarity of kind of imagery in the Bible. Uh, It seems like from from reading the Bible that angels, if you're thinking about basketball, uh, they tend to play more sort of like zone defense than man-to-man coverage. Uh, But we do see that God protects his people with ministering angels that are protecting us. But here, notice, the protection is far-reaching, especially if you've been hiking out on the mountains in the last days with your family or by yourself. As you've been hiking, you might notice how significant this protection is. Notice it says, They will keep the psalmist from striking a foot against a stone and tripping and falling. In other words, you can see the angels going alongside them as they're climbing up a mountain. And it's not just the enemies. It's even them protecting them own cell, their own selves from t- tripping over a rock. Not only that, the psalmist will tread on the lion, the adder, the cobra. These are intense physical enemies. But the second two animals that resemble the first, I think, might be an escalation. The young lion and the serpent that it ends with. Notice it says that he will trample them underfoot. And I believe that they actually symbolize greater spiritual enemies. We, we see this elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, you'll remember that 1 Peter 5.8 speaks of a, a devil, of the devil, as a lion. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And the last word for serpent is even more interesting. It's the same word for Leviathan. Now, Leviathan was that great, primordial, um, water-dwelling, dragon, fire-breathing creature that lived in the abyss or the, 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 the waters that were chaotic, that stood at enmity against God, who is bringing in order into creation. But here what you find is, is that this great, this great Leviathan that is pictured in Psalm 74, 14 of lurking in the deep chaotic waters that warred against God. Here there is an image that this person will be empowered by angels to stomp on his head. Now think about that image. Angels empowering you or me or the psalmist to stomp on the head of a fire-breathing dragon. Well, That might sound familiar to you if you read your Bibles. In fact, Job pictures God as tender and tough in Job 39 to 40 before flexing in Job 41.5. So don't don't miss this. God is tender and tough, says uh, says God to Job. But then in Job 41.5, he speaks of the Leviathan. And he says, you're scared of the Leviathan, this terrifying creature that has humanity scared and, and terrified and hiding in their houses. And let me tell you this, can you, let me tell you how I am indifferent than you. Can you pet him like a bird or put him on a leash for your little girls? I love that image. This great beast, everybody's terrified of it. And God says, that ancient dragon, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw him on a leash and I'm gonna let your little girls pet him. And you're scared of the little 
animal, my pet, that they're petting. It's not showing that the, the dragon is not evil. It is showing the power of God. These things that you fear, if you see them in relation, in proportion to God, they are small like little pets. And I'm guessing he's not talking about a Doberman, but a Chihuahua. God is great. And all the enemies that cause us to be terrified are small in the face of our great God. Well, of course, we know that these verses are true for the ancient, most ancient of dragons as well, Satan himself. Even in Job, he's pictured as a, a puppy on a short leash who has to ask God's permission before he acts at all. See, this goes back to Genesis 3. This is exactly what God promised the first time that Adam tripped and fell from grace in Genesis 3 when he sinned against God. He trusted the serpent more than he trusted God and he disobeyed God. He, he believed the schemes of the, 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 the serpent, that dragon, and all of the children of Adam fell as a result of Adam falling. But God promised that serpent Satan in Genesis 3.15. He said, it might seem like you've won the day, but there's another day coming, a day when a child will be born of a woman and she is going to crush your head. Now, interestingly, in Matthew 4, Jesus fasted for 40 days and nights. Is that king from the line of David. And the Holy Spirit actually led Jesus into the wilderness to confront Satan. Did you catch that? Didn't lead him running away from hard things, led him into hard things, meeting Satan himself. And it's here that we find that Satan gave him three tests. And Satan even quoted the Bible in these tests. And the second test was in verses 11 to 12, uh, which, are, which was quoted from Psalm 91. Satan is using this psalm. And he's saying, Psalm 91, it's about you, Jesus, so let's talk about Psalm 91. This is going to be one of the temptations that I give you. And he took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Matthew 4, and he says, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, and here he's quoting Psalm 94, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their heads they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. See, Jesus responded and said, it is also written, you shall not put your God to the test, and he refused. I see a couple of things happening here. First, Satan says Psalm 91 is about Jesus. That's his exposition of the text, very Christ-centered. If you're the son of God, then you should be safe to jump because angels will catch you. But there's a second thing. Jesus says, I'm not testing God. Now, you might be asking, how is that testing God not to jump, call down angels to catch him, and move on with his day? So I think what Satan is offering Jesus in these tests, in all three of these tests in Matthew 4, is the crown without the cross. Just do this, Jesus. Jump. Have the angels catch you. And I will give you the kingdoms of the world. And isn't that the way that sin always looks? Just do this. This little thing, and I will give you all of these great things. And yet Jesus sees it for what it is. See, Satan is actually in that request offering a kind of interpretation of Psalm 91, isn't he? He's saying, you've read about the promises of Psalm 91. You're the son of God. You don't have to suffer. He will always deliver you from every evil. There will never be any bad thing that happens to you. God will deliver you from evil so much that you will not experience the brokenness of this world. Jesus, you will not get sick. You will not go hungry. You will not lose a child. You will not lose your 401k. I mean, that's God's will and all, right? He's your protector, so you will never get hurt. I mean, aren't these the lies that we still hear today? There's an experience that is hard, and there's the God who is sovereign. Now, here's a couple of problems with that logic. First, experience. Experience tells us that Christians get hurt. Mighty men and women of God get hurt and sometimes even die. Martyrs who died for their faith are in heaven right now crying down, how long, O Lord? See, we want justice. Our experience tells us that it doesn't work that way. And when experience doesn't jive with our exposition, we need to question whether or not we've understood the Bible rightly. But Jesus did understand the Bible rightly. See, Jesus had to suffer and die to make Psalm 91 a reality for you and me. Jesus couldn't accept Satan's deal because he had to go to the cross to get the crown. 
He had to die to deliver us from sin, death, and the devil, and that ancient dragon, the devil himself. He had to deliver us from the very wrath of God. See, if God is not for us, there is nowhere to run. There's no safe place for those who are outside of Christ. And that means if you are that person who is not in Christ, then you need to run to Christ. Jesus is the only safe place. Now catch this. Peter used Satan's logic in Matthew 16. Peter the apostle, the disciple of Jesus, was actually using bad logic, Satan's logic. You'll remember that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must suffer and be killed in verse 21. And in verse 22, just a few verses after being told, this is Peter and on this rock I shall build my church, he says, Peter says, this thing with the cross, Jesus, this shall never happen. And in verse 23, Jesus speaks back to Peter and he says this, Get thee behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are setting your mind on the things, not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, why does Jesus call Peter Satan here? Well, it's because he's using the same logic that Satan used in Matthew 4. You can have the crown without the cross, Jesus. We'll fight for you, we'll get it. You don't have to die. You can enjoy, inter, enjoy eternal and temporal joy without suffering. And Jesus says, you don't get it. I came to deliver people from a devastatingly broken, hopeless world. You have underestimated how broken everything around you is. And if you don't go, if I don't go to the cross, you'll be left in your hopelessness. And thus Peter's greatest fear, Jesus going to the cross, became Peter's greatest victory. See, God doesn't just want us to shelter in place. God wants us to shelter in Christ. Our safe place is a safe person, Jesus 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's what Jesus has done for us. He is our safe place. And you'll notice in verses 14 to 16, the voice shifts from you to I. And it's God speaking to those who find refuge in him. He says, if you are in Christ, these verses are for you from God. Think about this. God's voice to his people in Jesus. What does the voice of the protector say? He says this, beginning in verse verse 14. He says, Because he holds fast to me in love. This psalmist, he is holding fast to God in, in love. He loves him. He treasures Jesus above all things. He treasures God above all things. He is holding close to him, he is the center of his affections, his heart, his longings, his warnings. He says, because of the love that you have for me, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. I've given it to him. And when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. And I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Christian, what does this mean for us? Well, it means if you're in Christ, you're in a good place. Stay faithful. Stay faithful when hard things come. Stay faithful when you find that you've lost your job, when you find that you are sick, when you find that those whom you have loved have died and you can't get to them. Stay faithful. Trust God. See, we are more than victors in Christ Jesus and nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even death itself. And a day is coming when faith will become sight and the fullness of what Psalm 91 envisions here will be realized. Until then, we we do experience this in part. Sometimes God does heal us. Sometimes he does shut the mouth of the lion, but he doesn't always. He doesn't always, at least not yet. He will, but not yet. And until then, we are called to pray. Pray to our most high, all-powerful God who has called us into a greater covenant through his son, Jesus. We are to trust him, trust that that God is my God. We are to hold fast to God in loving and protecting our own heart's posture towards God day by day. Day by day. We are not just fighting to stay close to God geographically. We want to keep our hearts close to God, trusting him. And that is a daily fight. It's a war. You don't have to go outside of your homes to see the danger of not trusting God. In fact, sometimes it's in our homes that we are in the the greatest amount of danger, isn't it? 
Maybe some of you have been able to work your way out of recognizing your need for God and sin because you're working so hard day by day and, and all of a sudden your schedule's been disrupted and you've had time to think about your sinfulness and your past and your present and things that need to change and you become overwhelmed about the fact and the reality that you're a sinner and you need this God. He needs to be your shelter in a new and more intimate way than you knew yesterday. Maybe you're not, you need to be reminded that you're not alone in this trouble though. See, the Almighty God, He is with you. Your future is incredibly bright. Even if you can't see it yet, God has saved you in Christ. God is saving you, sanctifying you, making you more holy and glorious, even through your suffering. And God will save you, ultimately delivering you from evil. That's the promise that we have, brothers and sisters. But if you're not non-Christian, I want you to know this. God can be tender and tough for you. God can be tender and tough for you. See, the only safe place is a person, is the person, Jesus Christ, the God-man. I love what Luke 13, 34 to 35 says. It gives us a picture into the heart of Jesus. He is lamenting over Jerusalem because they have failed to come to him and to repent and to seek him as their king. And he says in verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. You're a bad, wicked people. <laughs> the people who are supposed to be the people of God. He says, Y'all are, are sinful and broken so much so you don't even know good when you look at it in the face. And he says, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you today, if you, are, if you have a friend, a family member that's not a Christian, they need to know that today is the day that he is willing. If you're non-Christian, you're listening to this, today is a day where he is willing to gather you under the protective wings of his grace and mercy. That is to be found at the foot of the cross. If you look to Christ, you are in a good place. If you're anywhere else, you're in more danger than you know. And so brother, friend, let me encourage you. If that's you, run to the wings of our mighty God today. Run to Jesus. Repent of putting your trust in all of the wrong places and put your faith in Jesus and be saved from sickness the devil, and the just wrath of God, not just now, but forevermore. Let's pray.